the more things change, the more they remain the same. Have you, and at least one person has, have you ever heard that idiom before? Um, I wonder if you've ever felt that way. You know, the, the calendar, it keeps, keeps moving. The days keep turning over, but you're, you're doing the same things, the same work, uh, the same tasks at home. Uh, the, the days are changing, time is passing, seasons are changing, but you're, you're writing the same letters, you're, you're answering the same questions, folding the same laundry, eating the same sandwich. Uh, tomorrow's Monday. Is it going to be like the last Monday? Things are changing, but you're, you're fighting this sinking feeling that they're really not. That they're really just staying the same. In, in the passage of Scripture that we're going to open together this morning, that's something of the feeling that we get. Uh, we get a, a, a new prophet in Israel. A new prophet steps onto the scene and into our view, but we, we don't get a new people of Israel. As we study 2 Kings chapters 2 and 3, we need to keep in mind the whole scope of Scripture. Eventually, God's final prophet, priest, and king will come, and he will bring about a new people. But we have to have passages like these that we find in 2 Kings so that we see and understand the depth of our sin, the, the ineffective nature of the old covenant and the necessity of Jesus and the new covenant. This is what we must keep in mind as we study 2 Kings chapters 2 and 3. If you haven't done so, let me just invite you to open your Bibles, turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. That's where we're going to begin our study this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 307. I believe it begins there on page 307. Last week, we transitioned from studying 1 Kings and began studying 2 Kings. And as we have often reflected, these Two books were originally one book with one message. Together, their message is the, the, the books of First and Second Kings is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. This, this week, we consider another transition in the book. Uh, a prominent prophet in the book, Elijah, he fades from view and his successor, Elisha, steps in to take up his mantle and his responsibility is exposing the disobedience and sin of the people of God. Kings as a whole, the book as a whole, uh, is a book which explains the, the division of the kingdom, the, the decline and the destitution of God's people in exile. Due to the, the disobedience and sin of the people of God and her kings, the people of God are, are deported, they're exiled, they're removed from the promised land of Canaan. And through uh, Those Second Kings chapters two and three mark a significant change. They also reveal to us that some things stay the same. In these chapters, we we meet the same God. We see His same power exercised, and we see the same sinners performing the same sins all over again. While we have a, a change, a transition in the one holding the prophetic office and exercising the prophetic ministry. God has not changed. God is able to pardon, to bring peace, and to punish. God preaches grace and mercy through His prophet. 
But the people of God continue to reject His Word and His ways. Same God, same sinners. A new prophet, but no new heart in Israel. And perhaps the message of 2 Kings chapters 2 and 3 to us today is this. Cling to the Lord Jesus. Stop clinging to your sin. Let's prayerfully consider this together. We're going to study these two chapters in three sections, beginning with our our first point, passing a prophet's power. This is where we see the power of Elijah passed to Elisha. In 2 Kings 2, verses 1 to 14, Elijah's office, ministry, and power is passed to Elisha. Let's, Let's look at passing a prophet's power. Let's begin... Uh, by considering this passing of power, by just reading the first six verses of the chapter. Take a look there, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord, as Yahweh lives... And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord Yahweh will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord, Yahweh, has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord, Yahweh, will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord Yahweh has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Right from the beginning of the chapter, we're told that a transition will take place. Notice that six full verses in, we have yet to actually reach that transition. Right? We, don't, we don't have verse 1, uh, the Lord was about to take Elijah away, and then verse 2, the Lord took Elijah away. Aren't you grateful that the Scriptures aren't boring like that? Uh, the Scriptures are, are full of tension, and our, our expectations are heightened for this transition. But, but the purpose of the tension is not merely to get kind of our blood pumping as we're reading this narrative. The purpose of the tension is to reveal to us that Elisha is a worthwhile successor to Elijah. Back in 1 Kings 19, we learned that Elisha would be Elijah's successor. But until now, we've only seen glimpses of his character and capabilities. Three times, Elisha is here tested for ministry. Three times, Elijah tells Elisha to to stay behind. But three times, Elisha answers with a a Ruth-like faith, doesn't he? And a commitment to Elijah and his God. Elisha will go everywhere Elijah will go. Elisha will do everything that Elijah's God tells him to do. Elisha reveals that he is faithful and therefore fit 
for the ministry. Elisha is not only tested by Elijah, he's also tested by a company of prophets. Uh, two companies. Uh, no fewer than two times he's, he's told by these prophets that the Lord is going to take Elijah from him. It's as if they're, they're calling, let, let go of him. Elisha knows that he will lose his beloved father in the faith. But for now, he's, he's focused on, on staying near to Elijah. After Elisha is tested and found faithful, Elijah is taken. This is what we see in, in verses 7 to 14. Take a look at those verses now. Verse 7. Fifty men, the sons of the prophets, also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked for a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Well, all throughout the book of Kings, we have seen startling allusions to Moses in the character of Elijah. Here, like Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea, Elijah parts the waters of the Jordan River. One final time, Elijah tests Elisha by inviting him to make a request of him. Elisha asks for a double portion of the prophet's spirit. In doing so, he's, he's actually asking for an inheritance. This is the language of inheritance. That's the idea behind the language of the double portion. And Elisha is not greedy. I think he's humble. Elisha is only asking for what he needs to carry on Elijah's ministry. He, he needs a, a, a double portion of Elijah's spirit if he hopes to have a, a glimmer of the ministry that Elijah had. Elisha is humble and he's also content. Elisha is content with God's providence in taking Elijah. He doesn't ask for Elijah to remain. He's ready to let go at the Lord's command. Elijah shares with his young apprentice that he cannot grant the, the ministry or the prophetic office that he's asking for. It's not his to give. But he is, he is certain that, that if he sees, if, if Elisha should see him depart, then the Lord will no doubt grant him the ministry that he has previously promised. Elisha sees Elijah being taken, not in chariots of fire, but, but in a whirlwind, we see there from the text. And notice the grief that Elisha 
expresses. He's losing a father in the faith. Glorious as Elijah's going is, this is still an intensely heavy moment of grief for Elisha. Have you ever felt this kind of loss that Elijah feels? Are you afraid of feeling what Elisha feels? Elisha, he, he tears his clothes. It's, it's a clear sign of grief in the Old Testament, a common expression of grief. And he takes up Elijah's cloak. Still, even in this moment of grief, I think we can see the grace of God. For here, in Elijah, is a man who overcomes death. Right? Elijah has overcome death. Here is a, a picture, a, a glimpse of someone who has defeated the grave. It is possible. With God, all things are possible. That's not to say that Elijah was sinless, but it is to say that God has this power. He can overcome the grave. And we've, we've already been told this before in the Old Testament, over and over in these verses. In fact, five times at least, we've been told that Elijah was going to be taken, and then God took him. I wonder if you remember Genesis chapter 5. It's a chapter of death and life. Over and over again, we're told that so-and-so, a, a name that's difficult to pronounce, that so-and-so uh, fathered children and then he died. And then so-and-so fathered that son and, and then he died. There's this kind of drumbeat of death in Genesis chapter 5. But then there's this wonderful little interruption with a man named Enoch. Right? He, he fathered a son. Enoch fathered a son. But then in Genesis chapter 5 verse 24, we're told this. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Elijah walked with God, and he was not, for God took him too. God has the power to overturn, override, and overcome death. In a, in a world of death, we, we need this hope of eternal life. And we can have this hope of eternal life because Jesus has overcome the grave. When we encounter death in this life, we come to realize that we need somebody to triumph over this enemy. It's an enemy to us. Do you see why Jesus is worthy of our faith? When we encounter death, we come to realize that only someone who has actually triumphed over it is worthy of faith in this life. The reason that Jesus and only Jesus is worthy of our faith is because He's the only one who has defeated death. He's the only one who can say with any credibility that anyone who believes in me shall have eternal life. As much as we're taken up with Elijah's departure, his escape from death, the real focus of the narrative is on God's power upon Elisha. Elisha, he, he picks up the cloak that Elijah left behind. He strikes the water of the Jordan like Joshua did hundreds of years before. And he crosses on dry, land, dry ground. Just as Moses passed his office to Joshua, so Elijah passed his office to Elisha. Just as God's power attended Joshua after Moses' departure, so God's power attends Elisha after Elijah's departure. What Elijah was able to do, Elisha is now able to do. Now, for, for those of us who have attended church for any length of time, 
We're, we're, we're kind of used to hearing about God do these great and, and mighty miracles. Uh, perhaps all of the, the phenomena in this chapter, the, the chariots of fire, the horses of fire, the whirlwind, the parting of waters, perhaps all this phenomena has become normal to us. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is anything but normal. This is anything but natural. This is supernatural. And, and if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then perhaps you read and hear of these mighty works and power and you think to yourself, there's no way that happened. Well, I understand why you might have that reaction. But friend, the God who made the universe with, with its laws of nature can decide when he would like to overturn, upend, bend and break them for his glory. This is his world. He can do what he wants with it. Until you embrace this reality of the Christian faith, uh, you, you will struggle to understand Christians, I think. You see, our whole faith is actually built on miracles. The miracle of God speaking the universe into existence. The miracle of God taking on flesh and entering into our world. The miracle of Jesus Christ getting up from the dead. We believe these things because God can do these things and because God has done these things. The Bible is the historical witness to God's mighty, miraculous acts. Now, just back to the text. The, the main question you see there is in verse 14. Do you see verse 14? Here's the main question of the narrative. Where is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Elijah? The answer is undoubtedly, the Lord is with Elisha. We need this answer as, as Elisha prepares to take up the prophetic ministry of, of confronting the people of God with the word of God. The, the same God who was with Elijah is with Elisha. And the remainder of this chapter, the remainder of chapter 2, it, it fleshes this truth out as we see Elisha's power to pronounce pardon and punishment. But, but before we turn to, to the second half of, of chapter 2, we need to consider how what we've looked at in these first 14 verses relates to us. I wonder if you see in Elisha's clinging to Elijah the calling of disciples of Jesus. As the Lord Jesus lives and as long as he lives, and he lives a very long time, he will live forever without end. Do not leave him. As long as the Lord lives, do not leave him. We are called to keep clinging to Jesus and following Jesus, even though we know we will suffer heartache in this life. Jesus has promised that his disciples will face difficulty. He's told us the truth about life in this world. And he says, keep following me. There, there's, a, there's a profound difference, though, whereas Elijah truly leaves, Jesus never leaves. Yes, yes, Jesus ascended into heaven, but he also promised and gave his people the gift of his Holy Spirit. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we do not depend upon government or societal structures or cultural appreciation or prophetic and apostolic succession. There's a tendency, I think, to think that. What do we do after the loss of Augustine or Martin Luther or C.H. Spurgeon or J. Gresham Machen or R.C. Sproul or, or Billy Graham or any hero in the faith? What do we do after God takes our contemporary fathers in the faith? 
Those preachers who are even today perhaps alive and well. And we've learned so much from like Elisha learned from Elijah. We depend upon the same God who has empowered His church by His Spirit to proclaim His good news for two millennia. The, the only man we ought to ultimately fear losing is a man that we cannot lose. The man Christ Jesus. This is not a time for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to fear. This is a time for confidence and drawing near. We ought to stay close to the Lord Jesus. To cling to Him in faith, hope, and love. We can do so knowing that His same power will reign in and through our church and our lives. We've considered the passing of a prophet's power. And now we turn to consider our second point. Which is really just an elaboration of the first Having seen Elijah's power to pass to Elisha, we see him exercise that power. So we'll study this in our second point. Here's, here's the title of the second point. Peace, pardon, and punishment. Peace, pardon, and punishment. This is what we see in verses 15 to 25. Follow along as I, as I begin reading. We're going to look just at verses 15 to 17 first. Beginning there in verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not sin. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent, therefore, 50 men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. In the, in the verses that close the chapter, the, the, the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see three discrete scenes. And, and in varying ways, they all confirm that Elisha has taken up the prophetic ministry that Elijah passed down. And in this first scene that we just read, in this first scene, grieving prophets are, are, are desperate to, to go to the grave of Elijah. Elisha has, has peace about the transition that has occurred, but the community of prophets is clearly still wrestling with the loss. And after being worn down, asked over and over again, Elisha reluctantly agrees, only, only to be proven that he should have actually been listened to in the first place. Look, guys, I told you not to go. I told you not to go. They need to listen to Elisha. There needs to be ears turning toward Elisha and his ministry. And this is a key development for an emphasis on Elisha's words will become plain in the remaining two scenes in this chapter. Take a look at the next scene. This is in verses 18 to 22. And here we, we see a kind of pardon for sin, a, a removal of curse in exchange for blessing. Pick up there in verse 18. And, and they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho and they said to him and he said to them did I not say to you do not go now the men of the city said to Elisha behold the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful he said bring me a new bowl and put salt in it so they brought it to him then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said thus says the Lord I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. 
Now, take a look again at the conclusion of this scene. Verse 22. Verse 22. You see it there? So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Do you see the emphasis on the word of Elisha? Now, we need to step back and kind of marvel at this miracle for a moment. It is significant that after the crossing of the Jordan on dry ground, as Joshua did, mind you, that Elisha performs a miracle in Jericho. Elisha is not only retracing the steps of Elijah, but do you remember Joshua's first victory in the Promised Land during the conquest? It was at Jericho. And remember, too, that Joshua, after he defeated Jericho, he actually pronounced a curse on Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, he said that whoever sought to rebuild the foundations of Jericho would do so at the cost of their firstborn son. And whoever sought to rebuild the gates of Jericho would rebuild it at the cost of their youngest son. Joshua pronounced a curse on Jericho. And Jericho is a place of curse. God has purposed to oppose anyone who would seek to raise it up again. And do you remember what happened in 1 Kings 16? Of course you do. You were all awake for that sermon. You never forget anything. So of course you remember that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, that under the, the reign of the, the wicked uh, king Ahab, a man by the name of Hiel rebuilt Jericho's foundations at the cost of his firstborn son. And then he sought to rebuild its gates, and he did so at the cost of his youngest son. And it's clear here that Jericho still remains under God's curse, for the water supply of the city is bringing forth death. Death marks Jericho until the word of God brings life. It's not Elisha's throwing salt into the spring of water that brought life, that was simply a a visible sign that attended the miraculous word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord that brought healing and life. And Elisha spoke that word of Yahweh. So look at verse 22. Verse 22 does not say, it does not say, so the water has been healed to the sea according to the salt Elisha threw. No, what, what does it say? It says, so the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And Elisha spoke the word of the Lord. Elisha's word was Yahweh's word, and Yahweh's word is Elisha's word. Elisha speaks the effective word of the Lord. He overturns curse, and he brings blessing. Here, he overturns death and brings life. Here is a pardon for sin and a healing, a peace that endureth. Imagine being an ancient Israelite in exile and reading this scene. Imagine what hope this would give to those who are experiencing the curse of the exile. Imagine how this would have encouraged them to listen to God's prophets. And friends, things are really no different today. Our world is Jericho, right? Our, Our city, Arlington, Northern Virginia, is Jericho marked and marred by curse. The the earth miscarries, children die, men and women are burdened by disease and sin. Christians are exiles and strangers, pilgrims wandering through this weary world. And by His word, God still brings life where death reigns. Through the proclamation of God's word, faith comes by hearing. Eternal life comes by hearing. This is why we place a primacy on the preaching of God's word in our corporate gatherings. Because God brings life 
through his word. And to be honest, this is a fight of faith each week. Is this really how God works? I mean, does he really use this to change and transform his people through seemingly this seemingly old, dead, long form of communication? Well, that's how it worked in the book of Acts, right? Where Peter went about preaching the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's how the Apostle Paul went about uh, preaching in synagogues and in cities, explaining the scriptures in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, how he fulfilled them. And churches were created and started and sinners were saved. Yes, this is how God works. He works through his word. It's also why we need to be committed to declaring God's word to our friends, our family members, our neighbors, and our co-workers. Uh, Dan's prayer was so appropriate for us this morning, wasn't it? We need to believe that God powerfully, works powerfully by his word. And our faith in God's working in and through his word will be shown in part by our actually declaring his word. Who are you going to share God's word with this week? Who, who in your Jericho needs to hear about your Jesus? Who, who do you know is feeling the effects of the curse? Though, though maybe they can't put it in those words. They know something's wrong. Who is feeling the guilt and the weight and shame of their sin? Who thinks they're too far gone that all hope is lost? Who do you know that needs to hear about peace with God through the pardoning voice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 2, it closes with an uncomfortable scene. We move from pardon to punishment. Read verses 23 to 25 now. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord Yahweh. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. What's going on here? We want to be careful not to explain away the unsettling nature of this text. While at the same time, I think, grappling with it honestly. As we read the text, we may be inclined to think that a, a group of boys just kind of happened upon Elisha. And that they do what all young boys do, right? They, they tease him. That's not quite right. While these may be small boys, they're clearly old enough to be wandering around town. And they're not quite wandering, actually. They're deliberately seeking Elisha out. We're told that they came up out of the city. Right, Elisha is making his way and these boys come up out of the city to, to jeer at him, to, to, to mock him, to malign him. Moreover, there are at least 42 boys in this bunch. That's only the number of boys who caught a bear claw. How many more of them were there? See, this is a mob, actually. And they're in Bethel, one of the places where the people of Israel gather to worship idols. This is not a town friendly to God's prophets, the prophetic ministry. To malign Yahweh's prophet is to malign Yahweh. Do you remember, remember how closely Elisha's word was associated with Yahweh's word? 
in verses 18 to 22. So when Elisha speaks a curse in the name of the Lord, he's doing so with the same authority and power of Yahweh's word. This isn't personal for Elisha. It is personal for Yahweh. See, Elisha's rejection is emblematic of Yahweh's rejection there in Bethel. But what are we to make of these bears and how are they connected to Yahweh's curse, the punishment due to sin? Well, they're nothing less than the fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 26, verse 22. Did you know that? In Leviticus chapter 26, Moses told the people of Israel that if they reject the Lord, covenant curses would come upon them. And this was one of the covenant curses. So listen to Leviticus 26, verse 22. And I will let loose the beasts against you, which shall bereave you and your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your road shall be deserted. You see, this mauling by mama bears was God enacting his covenant curses on these rebellious boys. One commentator called these bears covenant bears. And, and, and he went on to say this, Quote, covenant infidelity, hatred of Yahweh's representative, and perhaps persisting in Bethel's perverse idol worship has brought the covenant curse. Had Elisha been wrong to curse, one would assume Yahweh would not have fulfilled the curse. That Yahweh did so validates Elisha's curse. Here is not an irritable prophet, but a judging God. End quote. This episode would have reminded ancient readers the danger of rejecting God and His Word. It would have reminded them that rejecting God's Word, His Word, and His prophets would bring covenant curses. And notice where Elisha goes. You see, he goes to Mount Carmel, and then he goes to Samaria. He goes back to the capital of Baal worship, and then to the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's as if his path speaks of the link between Israel and her idolatry. He is now on his way to confront the king. Those sitting in exile, reading the book of Kings, would have sadly nodded their heads and thought, look, this is how we got here. We have come under the judgment and curse of God for rejecting the word and the worship of God. Our God today has the same power to pardon and the same power to punish. And the good news of the Bible is that all who trust in God's Son the Lord Jesus Christ will receive that pardon and peace. Friend, there is no reason for you to endure the eternal, self-conscious punishment for your sins in hell. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and escape the wrath that is to come. Be honest about your heart. Be honest and admit that you have sinned against the God who made you. Be honest and behold the amazing mercy of God. He invites sinners like you and me to come to Him and find forgiveness in His Son. He sent His Son to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience, and to die the death that our sins deserve. Jesus died on the cross, bearing the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus died and was raised. Jesus died bearing the covenant curse. He was raised so He can give you eternal life and pardon for sin. So, so turn from your sin. Repent of your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to turn now to our third point. And here our focus will be on 2 Kings chapter 3, the whole chapter. 
And here is where we see Elisha taking up the ministry that prophets are so often engaged in. Interacting with the kings of the people of God. Here's the title for our third point. A problem, a promise, and a failure. Now I know that some of you are expecting a third P. But come on, friends, you can't always alliterate all of your points. Unless, unless you wanted to spell failure with a PH. But I'll leave that decision to you uh, in your sermon notes. Failure spelled properly in mine. A problem, a promise, and a failure. First, let's notice the problem. Let's notice the problem. Uh, read, take a look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 for now. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Ahab became king over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Though not like his father and mother. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Well, here's the first problem. Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is king of Israel. Ahab, as we have seen, is the prototypical bad king in the book of Kings. He did everything he possibly could to, to provoke the Lord to anger. It's like he's constantly trying to poke the Lord in the eye with what he was doing. We're told here that Jehoram also does evil in the sight of the Lord. He was evil, but he was not quite as evil as his parents. Did you hear that, young people? Uh, you, you don't have to be quite as evil as your parents. Now, I, I know that you believe you're, you're not going to fail in the ways that your parents do. And frankly, we're praying that for all of you. Um, but before you start believing your own hype, right, do notice the fact that, the fact that this, it's a little consolation that Jehoram was not as evil as his mom and dad. Right? He's still evil. Though he didn't worship the Baals, he still allowed the worship of idols in the cities of Dan and Bethel. You may not, young people, you may not fail in the ways that your parents do. We certainly don't want you to. But you're still sinners. And you're still in need of Jesus. And God is still ready and willing and mighty to save. Jehoram, the son of Ahab, is king. That's a problem. And the people of Israel are still clinging to evil and sin. That's one problem. And the other problem we see here, we find, is that Moab is still rebelling. Uh, Moab started rebelling against Israel in chapter 1 of 2 Kings. But now Jehoram is attempting to kind of do something about it. In verses 6 to 9, Jehoram forms a coalition to put down the rebellion of the Moabites. The northern kingdom of Israel is led by Jehoram. The, southern, uh, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah led by Jehoshaphat. And Edom, uh, led by a no-name king... Uh, um, form the coalition. These three kings do. And they, they set out to put down this rebellion, but they're, they're clearly incompetent generals, right? Because they take a circuitous route and fail to provide water for their armies and animals. That's going to be a pretty significant thing in the midst of battle. They are in desperate trouble. And in verse 10, the, the faithless king of Israel, uh, Jehoram, chalks this up to Yahweh being against his people. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, uh, we, we saw him last week. He's kind of this halfway king. 
Um, he receives a, a kind of a good con commendation, but he, he's always kind of compromising. Uh, Jehoshaphat says, you know what, we should, we should probably ask Yahweh before we go out to war if we should do this, right? Uh, a, a little late, uh, but better late than never. Uh, Elisha is identified as the prophet that they should seek. He's the prophet of Yahweh. And so they go down to meet him there in verse 12. Elisha, he expresses his disgust toward Jehoram. There's clearly uh, no love lost between them. Uh, and, and we can understand this as Jehoram's father, remember Ahab, he was constantly badgering and battling Elisha's father in the faith, Elijah. Nevertheless, though Jehoram deserves a word of judgment for his evil, God through Elisha promises a word of grace. Uh, pick, up, pick up reading in verse 16. See this promise, this kind promise from the Lord. Verse 16. And he said, Elijah said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. What a kindness to an army and animals needing water. I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, Yahweh, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord, Yahweh. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Here is a generous promise from Yahweh, right? He will give them and their animals mouths full of water. More than that, he will give them a decisive victory over Moab. Do you see God's generosity in this? Do, do you see the goodness of God in this, the patience of God in this towards sinful and rebellious kings? Jehoram, he's worthy of judgment, but God gives him a promise of grace. How many times has God given us better than we deserve? Miraculously giving water to his people, did you notice that? That's actually the small thing. It's the small miracle in this count. And when God promises to bless, His promises are so often big and bold and beautiful. Yahweh will also give the Moabites into the hands of this coalition. And the next morning, the Lord, He keeps His word of promise. As you can see there from verses 20 to 23, the Lord provides water for the armies and animals of the coalition forces. But He doesn't stop there. The Lord's provision of water is actually the means he uses to draw the Moabites into battle. It's two for one for Yahweh. He gets to supply his people with water and he gets to supply them with victory. From their vantage point, the, the Moabites, they see this water. It looks like it, there's blood in the water. They see what they want to see. They, they believe what they want to believe. They believe that the coalition forces have turned on each other, gone to war against each other. And they say, to the spoils, right? The, the opportunity to take the spoils of war is just too much to resist. So the Lord has drawn them into battle, right to the people of Israel. Pride and greed coalesce to bring them into battle with the coalition. And read the conclusion of the narrative, for this is where we see the failure. This is where we see that the people are still stuck in their same old sins. Verse 24. But when they came... 
This was Moab. When they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till it was only stones that were left in Kirath Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is a failure. At first, Israel has great success. They, they forge ahead and they, they do all that Elisha promised they would do. But when the, the battle kind of finally closes in on Moab, the king of Moab, he makes a last-ditch effort by sacrificing his own son. The phrase there in verse 27, uh, there came great wrath against Israel, has been variously interpreted. But I think the best way to read the text and understand is to recognize that Israel became enraged by what the king did and left the battlefield. This is just disgusting. We're, we're getting out of here. The Hebrew word underneath um, against can be translated upon, which means Israel was enraged by what they saw. Rage and wrath came, came upon them as they looked at what they saw and they, they walked away. That's the failure. They walked away. They did the same thing that Ahab did, actually, in 1 Kings chapter 20. This is just a, it's just a replay of Ahab. There Ahab, in 1 Kings 20, had the king of Syria in his sights, and he finished to fail, uh, finish, he failed to finish the fight. God promised to deliver the king of Syria into his hand, just as he had promised Jehoram that he would deliver Moab into his hand, but he fails to follow through. I mean, who is surprised that Ahab's son fails in the same way his father did? The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. God is the same God offering to give Israel Israel's enemies into their hands. He's the same God exercising the same power, and yet the people of Israel commit the same sins. They're not wholly, completely, and totally obedient. God is so patient with His people. He's even patient with evil Jehoram. He redeems and rescues His people from trouble time and time again, and yet they fail to obey. Christian, how many times has God rescued you from temptation? How many times has God rescued you from temptation and you've kind of walked back into the danger zone? How many times has God rescued you from temptation and instead of slamming the door closed, you kind of just open it a crack? And you know, you haven't walked back in the room, but the, the sliver, you're just kind of looking through it. How many times have we done that? Just as Jehoram wasn't all that different from his father, we're not all that different from Jehoram sometimes. In the words of Paul that we read earlier in the service, we're called to watch carefully how we walk and to put off those sins that God reveals in our lives and has rescued us from in Christ. Jehoram's only hope is our only hope. Jehoram's only hope was a king who would come from the line of David who would be fully and totally obedient. He would resist all temptation and sin. 
He would be totally devoted. He would wage war against that evil enemy and serpent, Satan. He would wage war. And he would not stop until he destroyed the works of the devil. Our great comfort is that our King, Jesus Christ, is able to save us, help us in time of need. Our great comfort is that he has won the battle. In the words of that old and wonderful hymn, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Friends, as we conclude, we need to think about this as Jesus, our only hope. In, in 2 Kings chapters 2, and three, we have seen the prophetic ministry pass from Elisha, from Elijah to Elisha. We've learned that Elisha is the authorized prophet of God who may bring God's peace, offer God's pardon, and carry out God's punishment. And sadly, we've seen that Israel and her king are still clinging to sin and rebellion. And at this point, in the, in the storyline of the Bible, it seems as though things are destined to go on as they always have. Though time passes, though the prophetic office passes from one man to the next, each new prophet seems unable to really affect any change in the people of God. But to our great joy, the history of redemption does not get stuck in a continual cycle of condemnation. No, the history of redemption keeps going and progresses until we meet Jesus, a prophet like Moses, like Elijah, and like Elisha. He too has the power to heal, but he has something the former prophets did not have, the ability to transform and forever change his people from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus, things change, but they don't remain the same. And in God's kindness, Jesus won't leave the lost where he found them. And so we cling to him till our ransomed souls find rest. Let's pray together.